This is Arab Talk on KPOO, San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have an absolutely great show today. We've got a lot of room to cover. We're going to be talking about the vicious uh, attacks on Representative Ilhan Omar in the Congress and talking about the context for that. But we're also very, very fortunate to have in studio with us today Professor Hatem Bazian. Professor Bazian is a professor at UC Berkeley. He teaches in the Ethnic Studies Department. He teaches at Bolt Law School. He's also the founder and the head of the Islamophobic Study Center at at Berkeley. So we're going to be talking with Professor Bazian today about all these issues, but more importantly, this kind of um, watershed and groundbreaking article that uh, came out in The New Yorker just within the last week, uh, written by Adam Entus, who wrote about, um, basically wrote about, you know, this pervasive, systematic, psychological operation that has been targeting pro-Palestine activists, uh, former Mossad agents, heavily funded over decades to the tune of, we don't even know how much money, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. So, Jamal, we have a lot to cover today. And I think, you know, with everything, I think we should context- contextualize it by talking about Ilhan Omar, Representative Omar, because um, really we're at a major inflection point right now. Mm-hmm. The context within which she's been viciously attacked across the political spectrum we should probably start with that. As a so context. just for uh, the context for our listeners, of course, we're going to talk about uh, the attacks, the vicious attacks on Representative Ilhan Omar, the first Somali uh, Muslim American woman in Congress. And uh, we're going to also connect it with Dr. Hatem Bazian on the article that was pretty much featured, Dr. Uh, Bazian, how a private Israeli intelligence firm spied on pro-Palestinian activists in the United States. But I want to start first because this is the title of our show. Are these attacks Islamophobic, the attacks on Ilhan Omar? And, or if she, were, if, if she were someone, you know, another congressman or congresswoman, would she have been attacked in this well, I, I, I think if we look at uh, the attacks on Ilhan Omar, from that moment she got elected, uh, and even before she got elected, there was a concerted effort to demonize her uh, and try to make some type of a connection. Uh, you have the attack coming that she is part of the Brotherhood Movement, that she has uh, been working or have attended care functions, that she has spoken or uh, tweeted statements out in 2012 uh, in response to the Gaza attack. So what we see is the structural pattern of demonization uh, was being unleashed on Ilhan Omar and simultaneously on Rashida Tlaib uh, in Michigan. Right. Uh, And what we are seeing is the uh, pro-Israel Zionist uh, infrastructure in the United States uh, as early as the mid-1990s shifting its strategy from uh, their perceptions or their approach of targeting the PLO and what they consider to be Palestinian uh, PLO organizations 
uh, to shifting to the primary target and rationale to targeting anyone that have association with Islam or Muslimness. Uh, and in this sense, they developed an Islamophobic campaign, uh, beginning with, if you remember, the uh, Clinton adoption right. of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act in response to an emergency that took place in Israel, which was the first time in the history of the United States that a state, uh, that a national state of emergency is actually is declared, not because something occurred in the U.S., but it's something that occurred in Israel. And Clinton declared the state of emergency that targeted uh, individuals and organization. And from that point on, we see the instrumentalization of Islamophobic discourse by pro-Israel uh, organizations and groups domestically and internationally. Post 9-11, we know that there was a whole report that was produced by Frank Luntz on how to speak to the American public and the Western public in relations to uh, partnering or making the war on terrorism to be identical to Israel's uh, contestation and continued attack and uh, frustrations of the Palestinians. So you began to say that uh, the United States has Osama bin Laden. We have a similar, we have the Arafat, Yasser Arafat, so he was demonized at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, you have Afghanistan, where Al-Qaeda, we have Hamanistan in Gaza. So this was a PR strategy to try to link Israeli political speech and political uh, propaganda in the U.S. and Europe with the U.S. Uh, uh, propaganda and support for the war on terror that was adopted by the Bush administration. So this is what you're seeing, that Israel is no longer able to actually argue the ar make any argument logically, since we don't teach logic anymore. <laughs> they can't make the argument logically about why they need to occupy the Palestinians, why they, they need to continue to build settlements, why do they need to build walls, why they continue to kill Palestinians almost on a daily basis. So the only way for them to continue their rationale is to use the Islamophobic discourse and any type of target emerging or at any time, university or otherwise, they'll highlight it and begin to rally Islamophobic uh, content mm -hmm. in order to rationalize them and then connect that to some type of anti-Semitism that is at the core, almost biologically, uh, can be attributed to the Muslim subject in this discourse. And I think this is what Ilhan Omar is facing. So, Hatem, at the same time, that's a really excellent um, kind of historical unfolding of the of 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 this kind of conflation of interest between, let's say, Israeli interests, security interests, and U.S. security interests, and then sometime in you know after 2010, when we were seeing an erosion of um, kind of narratives and descriptions and articulations of Palestinians' uh, rights to self-determination, we saw the emergence and the birth of the BDS movement. True. Initially, that BDS movement was poo-pooed, as we know. And we, we remember the infamous remark that uh, was made by Netanyahu and other scholars that this is a mere irritant and will go away in no time. Un you know, unfortunately for them, unfortunately for the rest of the world, the BDS movement has grown exponentially and is one of the largest nonviolent um, uh, uh, campaigns to um, basically call attention to the occupation of Palestine, the attacks on pro-Palestine activists, and an attempt to hold 
the state of Israel accountable for its uh, war crimes. I wonder if you could articulate in the same historical vein the kind of evolving anxiety about the BDS movement because it, I think it dovetails with uh, uh, Ilhan uh, Omar's uh, attack mm-hmm. and that will segue into our discussion about what, what happened to you. Sure. If I could also take the discussion a little bit earlier in sure. history. I think the first Gulf War is very important yes. juncture yes. in Palestinian uh, activism, organizing ad- advocacy in the United States. Uh, the Gulf War ushered two things simultaneously. On the one hand, the uh, disruption of Palestinian uh, society in the diaspora in the Gulf, which was a main source uh, for support. Uh, for Palestinians who are studying abroad. So Palestinians used to come from Kuwait, from uh, United Arab Emirates, from Saudi Arabia, and also Palestinians from Jordan, uh, possibly Syria, uh, the West Bank, Lebanon. They used to come to the United States to study, but they're funded by their families that used to work in the Gulf. So the Gulf War actually cut Uh, that process and that support. So all of a sudden, uh, you have Palestinians that were uh, not coming to U.S. campuses, and therefore there was a shift and a change in the nature of organizing. The second is that uh, also as we get into 1991-92, this was the total collapse of South Africa and uh, apartheid system and the end of apartheid, which if those who are uh, involved or were involved during that period Uh, One aspect of the anti-apartheid movement actually was a demand that was put in many of the committees is to actually have sanctions on Israel because Israel was breaking the uh, armed embargo on South Africa. And therefore, what you have is a coalescing of initial engagement of the pro-Palestine activism with the South Africa. This would be a point where college campuses, in particular UC Berkeley, the beginning of the creation of Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, it actually is emerges in 1992-93. Right. And from that point on, the campus nature of organizing takes a different dimensionality than what you have of, of GUPS, the General Union of Palestine students, which used to be the primary uh, line of work on college campuses. Move forward to the 2005 call for PDS by Palestinian civil society. That call already resonated with a political landscape and an activist body, both in the United States, Europe, and other places that have embraced the Palestinian cause as a cause to rally globally, considering that Israel has historically aligned itself with some of the most regressive policies, both in the United States and Europe. We just need to remind uh, the listeners that uh, Israel was engaged in Latin American uh, uh, death squad, torture campaigns. They were actually the subcontractors in the death squads in El Salvador. They were heavily involved in the Guatemala genocide that occurred. Uh, They were also involved in Africa, in the war in Zaire, the war in Angola, the war in Eritrea. So there, again, if you wanted to have a brand uh, advertisement, my recommendation (laughs) is Israel is not a good brand for you to attach your claim on it. So they come into post-2005, the failure of what's called the war on terror. So the PDS comes in at the right moment from Palestinian civil society, and then it begins to to pick steam. I'm not surprised that Netanyahu and the Zionists responded the way they responded, because that's how power responds. 
power only looks at itself in the mirror and says, I'm beautiful, because they are unable to see beyond themselves, and therefore the emperor had no clothes in relation to Netanyahu. So it was an obvious understanding from their part that these are just a bunch of people that just on the margins, in the same way that South African apartheid right. regime responded to. Until, so, so until they changed, by the way, to calling BDS as an existential threat, right. which is a term Israel reserved initially to Iran, sure, really, sure. not even to the Palestinian Fatah Party or Hamas, yes. maybe sometimes Hezbollah, but to Iran, going from something that they've mocked, really, yes. to say that BDS now is an existential threat. So that's, my, that's my question to you, Hatem. How did it go from uh, simply a, you know, uh, an irritant to an existential threat in such a short period of time? Well, again, from a person that was engaged in the South Africa anti-apartheid movement, uh, I would actually like to express my, uh, you know, at least from a laughing point, thanks to the Israeli, <laughs> that w once uh, your own uh, uh, target or the own your own emphasis on Israel highlight your uh, strategy, they become your advertising campaign. So in right. this sense, I'm thankful for a state that have elevated the profile of the PDS movement to be an existential threat for a, for a country that have nuclear weapons, at least if we follow Vinuno's uh, argument, possibly 500 or 600 warheads. Right? But again, it actually points to their insecurity and their inability to maintain the levers of power and the level of propaganda discourse both in the United States and Europe. So the elevation of the PDS is a result of their missteps. Uh, I think they miscalculated in their four attacks on Gaza because they thought that just because the White House uh, is uh, muted and silenced does not mean that the large public in the United States, Europe, and much of the world is not actually silent. They lost the uh, social media. They lost uh, the uh, activist uh, advocates uh, on civil society in Europe, the United States, Asia, uh, Latin America, and so on. So the miscalculation on their part in relation to the four attacks on Gaza, the attack on Lebanon, which was completely right. disaster. And then uh, one has to actually make the point that Netanyahu's, uh, what you call, approach to his political engagement with the United States, almost slapping the U.S. political elite time and time again. And no more clearer than this when he actually marched into the Congress to challenge a sitting president. And I think there is an aspect in there in right. terms of racial discourse. I'm not a fan of uh, Obama. I wrote a piece on him in relations to the drones attack and how he had right. joined the dark side. So, But on the question of Israel, if you remember, as soon as he gave his Cairo speech, which wanted to shift and change and critique Israel, that's when the whole that's apparatus right. flipped against him. That's right. And Netanyahu marching into Congress, being clapped upon and having more standing ovation than a sitting president. Against is, the will, by the way, of the White House. Against the will of the White House and so on. So he's saying that I am the boss here. I right. could tell you what needs to be done. And the Republicans who actually were acting from narrow self-interest uh, wanted actually to... Uh, reduce the credibility of Obama because they were setting themselves up for the upcoming election. They actually celebrated Netanyahu making that act. What's important in here, that Israel became a partisan issue uh, after a long period of time of, be of becoming uh, something that both parties agree upon. Mm -hmm. Now you have actually occurring a shift 
in in the United States among the large population within the Democratic Party. And I think we're seeing some of this effect as we speak today. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. I also want to welcome our viewers on Facebook Live. With us for the entire hour is Dr. Hatem Bazian. And um, we're talking about BDS. We're talking about the vicious attacks attacks against uh, Representative Ilhan Omar and also the silencing of academia on college campuses, which we've discussed that before. So, you know, uh, taking us back to BDS, and I think, the, I, I think you know, the, uh, probably prior to now, what we're seeing in Congress, the most vicious attacks happened on college campuses. True. And you were targeted, you were one of the targets other professors also were targeted. Actually, one of the largest targets, Jamal, but, really, if you want to talk about it. So so before we start talking about what happened when they attacked you in particular, how did we kind of evolve from, from going from college campuses to the back doors and hallways of Congress to actually now putting a bill, you know, to penalize uh, institutions, companies, individuals who support uh, BDS. Yeah. Uh, again, I look at it from a, a bigger and a longer strategy dynamics. Uh, the fact that Israel uh, and its uh, uh, political muscle in the U.S., whether it's APAC, uh, ADL, uh, JCLC, Jewish Community Relations Council, uh, or uh, American Jewish Committee, or Zionist Organization of America, and the whole blue network, which is this document speaks about, uh, their attempt to try to shift uh, the parameter by instituting uh, laws that restricts the ability of individuals to engage in PDS is an important development uh, from my perspective uh, for the advocates of PDS. And I don't think of it as a... Uh, as a loss, but actually it's shifting the boundaries of the debate. Yes. Uh, I think in here, uh, not that I want to give the uh, pro-Israel uh, any type of strategic uh, advice, uh, it seems that they're... <laughs> they're, good at, they're good at helping us anyways. They're, they're, they're fumbling their way because they only are determining their actions by means of the measure of power and ability to try to close the doors for engaging in the debate and the discussion. So by instituting these uh, legislation, whether in congressional level uh, or uh, in 25 states, have shifted the boundaries of debate from expressing your point of view on PDS and supporting PDS or not, whether you can be uh, engaging in pro-Palestinian speech or pro-Israeli speech, to shifting the boundary into actually constitutional right. Mm -hmm. Am I, as an American, able to engage in a speech that has been, that is at least as a standing law from Supreme Court decisions that boycott is a form of sanctioned speech and sanctioned action. So it shifted the boundary into a discussion about the First Amendment right, constitutional right. And I think this is a winnable case yes. for us across the board. It might take some time. It might frustrate some individual. We, have, we might uh, face setbacks. Mm -hmm. But I'm confident that this case will, is a winnable case. Speaking directly from mm. my experience, I was invited to give a speech at Arizona State University. Right. Uh, so the contract was sent to me to sign, and item 20, if I'm remembering, says that I will actually uh, commit myself during my engagement in this contract 
not to engage in PDS. <laughs> My speech at Arizona State University was supposed to be on PDS. So in here, it's a prior restraint. It's actually a university. Again, uh, I could understand maybe they, a they private... They tried to do that uh, for the hurricane victims in, in Texas. In, in Texas. So I refused to sign uh, the contract and filed a lawsuit mm -hmm. uh, against the university and against the state of Arizona that this is actually, this law is constituting a constitutional violation where of is my that, right. Uh, where is that lawsuit now? Uh, well, the uh, university withdrew the contract, so I don't need to sign it. So I actually went and spoke on PDS at Arizona State University. They no longer have the language in their contract. Wow. Right? And they were still going through the process with uh, Arizona to challenge the law, all indication that the law will actually uh, either be rescinded or be transformed. And I think there's another case that we are engaged in in Texas, uh, similarly with the uh, teacher that was required to actually That's sign right. the contract. So she refused to sign the contract and is being challenged. Another case in Kansas. So right. that the legal changes are taking place is going to walk all the way through to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court have enough precedent on the rights of boycott. The ironic thing that Arizona itself had a number of boycotts of cities in California because exactly. of the sanctuary movement. So you that. could boycott San Francisco, you could boycott Berkeley, you could boycott uh, LA or Portland, right? but you cannot boycott Israel. Now, if that does not vix you as an American, that you think that you have the freedom of speech, freedom of organizing, and all the enjoyable freedom that the Constitution gets, but you have limits that you can't actually boycott a foreign country right? that receives $3 billion plus annually from the budget. So for me, that's their miscalculation about thinking that at a, at a certain point you could silence people's mouths uh, and limit their ability to critique you and try to label it that this is a form of anti-Semitism. And I think that's their, their miscalculations. Ironically enough, not that I want to praise the ADL, the ADL agrees with me on this <laughs> in this Maybe point. the only time they've uh, agreed with you. Well, maybe they were spying on me so much that they took my, <laughs> my language and put it as a recommendation, but I'll leave it that to them. <laughs> that's the voice of uh, Professor Hatem Bezian. Joining us here on Arab Talk, Professor Bezian, is professor at UC Berkeley. He teaches in the Ethnic Studies Department as well as Bolt Law School. He's the founder and director of the Islamophobia. Uh, I used to teach at Bolt, uh, so not, not in the present. Not, not at the current, but I know you used to. Because, again, uh, I'm expecting that some of our friends who are, uh, are going to be watching, they're going to book this as the red herring that they might critique. You okay. see there's a factual mis so misregard. So not teaching there right now. Yeah, just okay. to be accurate, I just, you know, being myself that. is a stimulus to the economy, so I want to those who are employed to accurately transcribe so they don't have to go to Bolt to try <laughs> to check that fact. Okay, so I wanted to kind of push this a little bit because we're, we're on this kind of historical trajectory of getting to where we are today. And I just wanted to interject on the uh, boycott thing. You can even boycott Trump Tower Trump hotels, but you can't boycott Israel according to this. Absolutely. So and, and, and again, that's look, the irony, right? Look at the, uh, some of the pro-Israel organizations on campus and off campus. They were actually very strongly be, in, uh, on behalf of the boycott on Sudan, the Darfur exactly. movement. Uh, praiseworthy. Once can uh, talk. Uh, the whole boycott of Iran and asking for sanctions of Iran, the boycott on Libya and the sanctions of Libya, the boycott on Iraq and the sanctions of Iraq. Right. So what makes you having the right to push and support boycotts across these uh, various uh, arenas? But when it comes to actually calling for boycott of Israel, you say no, 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 no. no this no. is a form of anti-Semitism. Right. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, speaking of that uh, cake. Uh 
Professor Bezian. That kind of brings us to the vicious attacks on uh, Representative Ilhan Omar. Now, maybe, I don't know if I'm overstating it, but it appears that uh, this is a bit of a historical inflection point because the only issue uh, really in the American electorate or the American legislative scene prior to recently where there was the appearance of unanimity was on the question of Israel. It's really the only place where the elite in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party really came together pretty much unequivocally. Because of the attacks on uh, Representative Omar, there has been a dramatic pushback by more liberal and progressive forces within the Democratic Party. Do you really see this as a possible historic, important historical moment where we are today? Uh, again, going back, I think the shift in the Democratic Party begins with a sustained attack on Obama. Mm. Uh, and that attack and also Israel political elite predominantly becoming Likudist yeah. and becoming more extreme right and embracing and looking in the United States to link their or hitch their wagon on the right wing of the United States, the uh, religious right, uh, in particular the Republican Party, uh, segments of the Tea Party, and also similar type of uh, political relations in Europe. Uh, you would see that Israel relations with uh, the Netherlands in terms of uh, Gerd Wilder, uh, who heads a neo-Nazi party, uh, Marie Le Pen in uh, France, also heads a, uh, a neo-Nazi party. Her father, again, uh, a sick puppy that the French put him in jail right. uh, because of his uh, hobby. You could have many hobbies, but his hobby is to collect Nazi memorabilia. <laughs> Right. So his daughter, Marie Le Pen, is the leader of the French right wing, and she had was given a red carpet uh, welcome in uh, in Israel. Uh, similarly, the relationship with the British right wing, uh, including Farage being given uh, welcome uh, in uh, Israel, and recently uh, Israel have embraced or Netanyahu embraced the new Brazilian president, That's right. uh, That's who right. also likewise a fascist in terms of background. So that shift in Israel, shift to the extreme right, had its reflection in here. So APAC and much of its operative have become, again, reflective of Israeli politics, rotating the uh, uh, domestic uh, American Zionist orientation to the right wing and thus losing a considerable base within the Democratic Party. Uh, Obama is still one of the most uh, popular figures. That's Again, right. uh, this is not a critique of his policies. We could have a different That's discussions right. for that. So that movement have continued to uh, uh, develop, uh, culminating with Netanyahu's, uh, again, speech in Congress uh, and moving into the direction now that the Democratic Party is very split on the question of Palestine. Uh, Another dimension to remember, there was a discussion, if you remember during the last convention, the Democratic convention, when the plank on Jerusalem, oh, that's right, right, right. where a voice vote was taking place, it was clear that the, that the right. uh, delegates to the Democratic Party right. did not want that plank. They had to go through it twice. 
I think that dynamic will begin to actually intensify right. moving up in the 2020 election. Right. The grassroots have already shifted on the question of Palestine. It's no longer That's not an, an issue, issue anymore. It's not an issue. And that also can be added another dimension to it, which is the emergence of the Black, the, uh, black Lives Matter. And the solidarity that has emerged, That's right. a real solidarity that's emerged between the Black Lives Matter activists and the Palestinian activists, especially around the protests in Ferguson, and the uh, critical role that was played uh, by Palestinians in relations to communication and solidarity. It's not surprising that uh, Professor Mark Lamontel was right. part of the delegation that was right. organized by right. a number of individuals from the Black Lives Matter. And that also consolidated the shift uh, among certain segments of the African-American activists that the shift, you could uh, actually look at it from the early to mid-60s with right. Malcolm X and that movement, right. and then also the role of uh, uh, some of the progressive movements, whether Black Panthers and others, mm -hmm. that adopted and embraced uh, uh, third world uh, anti-colonial struggles and liberation struggles, and Palestine was part and parcel of that, but it took over 20 to 30 years yeah. for that consolidation. So I think we have a very important opportunity right now uh, that Ilhan is sitting at the tipping point yes. of riding that consolidation that is beginning to take place. So you know who the biggest support for Ilhan Omar was behind the scenes. It was the C Congressional Black Caucus. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, if Isn't you that interesting? Uh, absolutely. Again, uh, and I have an article coming up in a, f in a week that speaks about the shift in relations to uh, black uh, African-Americans and black uh, movements domestically in the United States, but also transnationally in relations to Palestine. And where are these spikes in relations to the solidarity? Uh, so often that case relative to the Black Caucus and the leadership of African-American civil rights movement and post-civil rights movement and where Palestine featured. Andrew Young had, was a painful uh, episode yes. <clears throat> for African-American. Here's an icon of the civil rights movement, and he was completely pushed out from being the United States representative to the UN for the sole right. reason of actually meeting with the PLO. While other, fi other figures within the U.S. landscape were meeting with the PLO behind, do behind all doors time, right. all the time, but because he is representative or a symbol of a particular type of struggle, he actually was dealt with in a complete uh, disrespectful way. And then you look at Jesse Jackson during the Rainbow Coalition uh, in 1984 and 1988, and how also he was dealt with. Jesse Jackson was a transnational, reflective. Again, one can disagree on some of the elements relative to Jesse Jackson, that's not the issue. But symbolically, he was uh, carrying the legacy of the civil rights movement from the period of uh, Martin Luther King. He was engaged transnationally uh, and was an international figure. But because of his embrace of the Palestinian, or uh, actually be readiness to express positions on Palestine, made him almost a persona non grata relative to the Democratic Party. So it's been a long struggle to get to this point, and I think what we need is not that only Ilhan is knocking on the door. She broke the door, and she she's in there. Deal with it. And yeah. yesterday, she said in one of her statements, she said, "I have the same certificate of membership in Congress like everyone else." Right. She was pointing to the Democratic leadership, who's telling her, in essence, whether in direct or indirect, that you need to what you call shape up, shape up or shape, shape up, out, right? As <laughs> like she doesn't. All the Democratic leadership across the board, they don't know there's a she's new an, sheriff. She's well, she was elected. She has there's a, a new sheriff in town. 
around there's a new and it sheriff. does not report to Netanyahu for uh, the position that they need to take and they don't need to answer to APAC and that's basically what is taking place as in front of our eyes. I want to shift the conversation because we're halfway in the show to really talk about uh, which I think it was a great article this campaign called named Project Butterfly for our mm -hmm. listeners probably uh, some of our listeners are not familiar with the latest revelations and it's an article in the New Yorker that featured Dr. Hatem Bazian. It's a very disturbing story. It talks frankly. about a side groups operation against BDS activists on US college campuses which began in February 2016 according to internal doc documents uh, describing the campaign and the company raised money in New York from Jewish American donors and pro-Israel groups and assured them that their identities would be kept secret. And of course, it goes further, but not only this, but also they receive tax deductions, which I think it's a big thing because we know that similar groups or in a, in a different way, they're under investigation by what the equivalent of the U.S. Treasury in <coughs> Canada, right? Yes. So, so that's, this is now they're investigating this. And if this is, gonna, <coughs> if, if this is going to trigger later on, maybe yeah. an investigation. So you're prominently featured in this article. Yes. Obviously, they've been, they say 2016, but I think it's longer than this. It doesn't sound like 2016. Well, uh, I think what we need to break this into a number of pieces. Okay. Uh, have, have I been a target of uh, various aspects of the Israeli intelligence network in the United States, whether be it in the guise of the private Mossad or uh, Mossad on loan uh, and various <laughs> aspects, I would say absolutely. Mossad uh, for hire. Mossad for hire. Uh, I think also I've been a target of uh, the ADL, uh, yes. one of their primary targets. I've been one of the primary targets of JCRC, Jewish Community Relations Council. Uh, so I understand and have a, enough evidence uh, to point to this systematic targeting uh, uh, for the longest period of time. Uh, now, in here, what we have is a, a new development, and I think there was an article in the Jewish Forward yes. uh, just a couple of days ago that pointed to sh the shift that occurred in Israel, that we are the recipient or the, uh, the uh, aspect of the changes that we're witnessing relative to uh, this dynamic, that in 2015, uh, the, uh, a report that was prepared for Israel in 2010 was adopted to have a much more uh, hard edge uh, uh, targeting and direct targeting of individuals that are behind of the PDS. And Erdogan, who has uh, become the minister of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Israel, takes on that role. So my sense is that there's a qualitative mm -hmm. shift that takes place. And then we we'll get into this uh, private Mossad for hire. Now, it's important to actually say that this is a private company, uh, meaning it's operating under the guise of for-profit as a front. Mm -hmm. uh, this is to bypass U.S. law. U.S. Right. law prohibits uh, intelligence op uh, uh, organization from abroad, from a foreign country, to operate in the U.S. They have to register as agents of a foreign country, and they have to go through the procedure. Uh, so they, this, quote, uh, uh, Mossad for hire ex-agents, from all my reading of the document, again, I have the primary document in mm -hmm. front of me, right. it smells, tastes, and looks 
like a Mossad operation that is in coordination with uh, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. If it quacks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's, it's a, a duck. duck. Well, so it's, an, it's a Mossad duck all, that's all, operating we, in here. We, we also know from prior uh, examples like the assassination that happened in Mabhouh uh, in, uh, in the UAE. UAE. They use Canadian, Australian passports and other, you know. So, yeah. But so in here, again, they're operating as a uh, company. Yeah, uh, as a the, private company. Private company. It's a front. They solicited funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got, again, they ran a test case. It says that they mapped anti Israel uh, hubs nationwide, initiated, implemented of targeting plans, organizations, and individuals. Uh, they conducted two tours of main theater of action. That's, again, a military terminology, theater of action that they're using, e- executing intelligence and influence al- efforts collaborating with partners. So again, the partners, they refer to it as the Blue Network Partners, uh, executed five rapid response uh, uh, operations nationwide. And then they go on. Availability for future investment, they were actually calling for $2.5 million investment uh, in, in this operation in order to target. Now, what made this apparent is that uh, in 2017, uh, which the article uh, opens up with it, is that my own street, uh, the, my own car, the cars of everyone up and down my street in my neighborhood was covered with all these flyers that called me and then Rebecca uh, Volkerson from JVP, who's in New York, right. putting us uh, uh, in the flyers saying, calling us terrorists uh, and so on. And that was up and down. street. So meaning there was a specific targeting that took place. They also d- dumped a whole bunch of flyers. Uh, in downtown Berkeley, and at the same time, at the same exact day, a whole operation was run from New York. This indicates that there is actually a whole campaign that coordinated. is coordinated, that is being managed. It's not, you know, I run nonprofit, I work with nonprofit. This is a, not a nonprofit type of operation. This is someone that have resources and have uh, infrastructure uh, to run. And this was also following another campaign of having posters that were flooding the campus, both at San Francisco State, at UC Berkeley, UCLA. Well, we know about these posters and we know about Canary Mission and Campus Watch and wherever, because, you you know, this, of course, requires more than a two and a half million dollars. And we know for a fact that the uh, San Francisco Jewish Community Federation has spent in, in excess of $300 million dollars funding a bunch of these organizations from from Canary Mission uh, to Campus Watch. You've mentioned uh, the Dutch extremist uh, builders builders here received money from them. ACT, you know, uh, Pamela Geller's organization in New York and so forth. So well, it's bigger, uh, I think. No, no. I think what we need is to, uh, what you call, separate the different ducks that are on the pond. I think they're all connected. Uh, uh, no, ducks. they are connected. Again, they all operate under what's called the Blue Network. Right? Uh, now, the San Francisco Jewish Federation, uh, I don't know about the $300 million. I think they spend a lot. Some of it is legitimate. Uh, I don't want to, what you call, be uh, over... Uh, 
emphasizing how much they do co- they do support synagogues very positive they support their community center very positive uh, athletic programs very positive they do support some refugee resettlement very positive that's not what the beef I have with them the beef I have is that I have their 990 uh, tax returns right and I know that from their tax uh, tax returns 990 that they supported Gerd Wilder uh, in the Netherlands uh, we have a specific amount, $25,000 that they have in their tax return that they gave this individuals who, are, who was one of the most despicable Islamophobe on the world. In the world. Right. In the world. I so, just want to put uh, an update here. Uh, the House has just passed a resolution. Uh, I think it's 407 to 23. Mm-hmm. So what, the resolution. What's the re- which resolution? Well, the, the last version that I've seen condemning anti-Semitism and supposed to condemn anti They also included Islamophobia. And and, uh, but, I mean, it's still kind of on the heels of uh, and the they attacks didn't have, on they didn't have, Omar. Yeah. But supposedly it shouldn't have her name. In it, it. It's not. In I the, know for sure before. I know the text. Okay. I got it beforehand. I know it does not include her. I know that the language is actually, it's a loss for APAC, even though that uh, the vote. How so? How so? Because APAC was going hard that they wanted to punish Ilhan. Right. And uh, this morning there was an article in the Jerusalem Post that the APAC has overreached. They did not actually account for the contradictions and the various forces that are present in Congress. So while they're happy that the language on anti-Semitism is included, and I, I don't think anybody would disagree that anti-Semitism is a problem. No, we the don't. language they use actually is very positive language in critiquing anti-Semitism. Uh, but also they dropped few, again, for the APAC to save face about this special relationship between Israel and the United States. And all that, again, is just a gift to APAC. But the key factor in here, one, is they included Islamophobia as an aspect. Second, that Ilhan was not attacked in, personally, personally she was not mentioned. in there. Third, it is actually now speaks of bigotry as a larger issue rather than in a very narrow way. So again, politics is a contact sport. And in here, one has to assess that APEC thought that they had what you call they had a the, knockout. They had a knockout and on they, didn't. they had a knockout on Monday. Now comes first, it was delayed. Thursday, now they don't have a knockout. Rather, they have to take another round and accept that everybody can hold hand today, right? And sing We Are the World, that Ilhan is still will how be. How much do you think uh, they underestimated? I mean, the fact of the matter that Ilhan Omar, number one, she's a, she's a Muslim woman. She, she wears a hijab. She's a Somali refugee. I mean, do you think if, uh, if she didn't fit all these... Well, let me give you buckets. An, let they, me give they you. would have not come this hard. It, Ilhan did not back down. A okay. second, right? she didn't. So she didn't. I think there was a, a speech that she gave yesterday, a very positive speech that she expressed exactly where she's at. She didn't. She didn't back down. But also, one has to give credit that the community mobilized. Uh, yes. I was part of the. Uh, national uh, strategy to uh, respond to it. We were able to pull a coalition together. Uh, Almost 800 different individuals and groups signed on the letter that was released. There was a press conference yesterday, and then there were people that moved. My own organization, American Muslims for Palestine, was part of the uh, organizing group. I know CARE was there, and a whole bunch of other empower uh, so we actually, in literally 36 hours... And Jewish... Uh, Jewish Voice for, for Peace, peace if, so if not has, now. Yeah. So again, the, reason, the reason that uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats 
Uh, because, again, you have to know that this was a democratic resolution. Right. This was adopted to try to, what you call, uh, save themselves so they would not go into the 2020 election being accused that they're soft on anti-Semitism, soft sure. on this issue. And we have, again, if you think about who's in the White House as a president, uh, who said there are some uh, good people in the Charlottesville, being these, these are neo-Nazis that were running, nobody took him to test. So again, the democratic leadership was put to the test, and there was a massive mobilization, meaning that the pressure works and the people are mobilized, and they're sick and tired of the same type of politics that we have to respond to what Netanyahu and APAC wants us to do. And I think this is a moment that is very critical, even though that they passed this resolution, but it actually it affirms that APAC is no longer the king of the hill, and the king has no close. And I think that's what we need to go out with this message, even though that it did not give us completely what we want in terms of uh, not but it in the is resolution. A, but it is a big shift. Hat, it right? is. No, absolutely. That, that's that's that, how we need to understand that, it. We have to understand this as a dramatic, profound sure. shift where Nancy Pelosi was um, was confronted. The, the elite of the Democratic Party were, conf- were confronted and I don't know how many times in the past they've blinked when APAC has told them to do what they did. No, absolutely. But they blinked. Sure. No, and no. They, again, this, this is, a, this this is a, a big deal. Sure. I just want to remind our listeners, Jamal, that we're listening to Professor Hatem Bezian, professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, One of the founders of the Zaytuna College. College. Zaytuna College. Uh, is it Zaytuna University no, now? Zaytuna College. College still. Um, also founder and director of Islamophobia uh, Studies Center at UC Berkeley. I want, um, uh, Professor Bezian, if you could just like finish the story about, I mean, we're speaking in this context of psyops and psychological yes. operations, but we're really missing how profoundly they attacked you and your family. Oh, sure. And I don't want to lose sight of this. That well, it's you a and personal your attack. attack. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a vicious a, it's, attack. It's a vicious attack. It's an attack on my my family, my home, where I live. Again, I, when I can understand the campus politics, you know, I'm a veteran in uh, the ins and outs of uh, of politics. If you're going to come and knock on my door, you better be ready because I'm going to give as much as you can take, and I'm not going to be your therapist when you knock my door. <laughs> so again, I know, but when they target you at home. Now this is a, an escalation uh, that they're undertaking. But uh, let me also get the picture bigger. Okay. Uh, there are massive infusion of resources that are being deployed, both on targeting pro-Palestine, pro-PDS uh, activists, SJP on college campuses and nationally, and also the Islamophobic industry. I wrote an article in the American Studies Association Journal. I estimated... Three, three years ago, three and a half years ago, that 70% of the funding for the Islamophobia industry come from pro-Israel sources. I'm right now confident that I could actually escalate that yes. percentage to 80% yes. of the funding to the Islamophobia industry in the United States come from pro-Israel sources. In the last election, 2016, we have Robert Mercer uh, putting uh, Islamophobic ads that targeted white sections of the country with uh, these Islamophobic ad, these two and a half million dollars just like a pop. Right, right. Uh, similarly, uh, we know that uh, he's actually engaged in a similar type of campaign uh, of demonization toward the uh, Muslim population. Haim Saban, who actually is a major funder for the Democratic Party, where his interest is constantly to preserve and promote Israel's interest, as well as uh, Sheldon Adelson, they held a Las Vegas 
uh, summit to try to actually develop this strategy. They raised and, 60 million bucks there. And they raised 60 million. Again, in here, I want to make sure that our audience, just because these individuals are Jewish, does not mean that we want to blame them because of Jew Jewishness, because also some of the major supporters of Israel uh, come from the Christian right for their That's own right. purposes. Right. So while we want to critique Haim Saban and Shildan Asin, we should not miss the point that their, that their ease of operation and ease of work in this country is because they are operating in a hospitable environment that sees the confrontation between Jewish and Muslim as part of an end-of-time scenario, and we need to be smart at it. However, that some of the major Jewish organizations here, organized Jewish organizations, aside from Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, and others, have put and hitched their wagon to Islamophobia. This also gets me to, a to AJC, the American Jewish uh, Committee, right. which has been partnering with ISNA, Islamic Society of North America, to counter Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. But time and time again, they actually have resorted and went back to Islamophobia. Their executive director, David Harris, mm -hmm. uh, who often put these spots on, on the radio that is, are heavily Islamophobic, they gave the uh, Carriage Award to Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, they oppose Keith Ellison's election uh, for the chairman of the Democratic Party. And just all their activists the past week, if you also look their Facebook, their Twitter, their statements actually heavily, heavily Islamophobic toward uh, Ilhan Omar. So what kind of alliance, what type of coalition you want to defeat Islamophobia and anti-Semitism where every opportunity that to speak and actually come to defend and stand by Muslims when it counts the most toward empowerment and raising their status, they actually opt to use Islamophobia. So that's where massive resources and our report with CARE documenting the Islamophobia industry with 200, uh, 215 million that's spent, mm -hmm. uh, I would say 80% of it comes from pro-Israel sources. And that may be conservative also. Well, this is what we can document from yeah, 990 that, and tax that, returns. That still is probably a little conservative. Uh, we, I, I think it's the tip of the iceberg. Because we don't know how much is, is Again, hidden. what is a few million dollars between friends? <laughs> <laughs> We've been listening to Professor Hatem Bezian. Uh, professor Bezian is professor at UC Berkeley, teaches in ethnic studies, one of the uh, intellectual leaders um, in, in the area of Islamophobia, started the Islamophobia Studies Center, the one of the foremost journals on Islamophobia. The only journal in the world. Well, then it's the foremost the journal foremost. then. And so, but before we let you go, Hatem, I well, want... It's got to be a positive thing. Yes. yes. We want, it's we... like, what do you see, you know, the future, right. number one? And if people want more information about some of the work you're doing, if you could direct them to some websites or some resources if they want to get on board. Well, they always can access my website that has uh, all my writings and my engagement, hatambazian.com. It's a really excellent website, yeah, by so the way. H-A-T-A-M-B-A-Z-I-A-N.com. So yeah. you H-A-T-E-M. Sorry about yeah, that. It's okay. So, so Hatem Bazian, you could also Google me at uh, UC Berkeley, but make sure that you're always going to get Campus Watch because, <laughs> Canary you know, I'm an equal opportunity, so I keep a lot of people employed. Being myself is a stimulus to the economy, uh, so at least they'll appreciate this. So you could access you could access our IRDP project, Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project Excellent at UC project. Berkeley, uh, Islamophobia Studies Journal, where we actually write about uh, uh, all this material, so for sure. And really, uh, 
the future can be impacted by our own action. I'm not a person that asks you to be silent. Silence will not change history. Again, I'm for meditation. Meditate, but after you meditate, I want you to come out and speak. Uh, and speak. So speak truth to power. This is the moment where people are making a change. I think Ilhan Omar is representing that that phenomenon. Uh, I think Rashi- Rashida is f- representing that phenomenon. I think there's a whole new generation that is engaging and is beginning to understand these linkages. It is also to make a linkage between the local and transnational, between opposing racism domestically and opposing racism internationally, opposing militarism domestically with the police forces that are be- increasingly becoming militarized, and opposing militarism abroad, uh, obscene, uh, the obscene level of capitalism that we're seeing, the distortion of uh, the uh, whole uh, domestic capitalist enterprise, and the globalization that is basically reshaping the world. So these are they're not disconnected. Then I also always recommend for my students and everyone. I recommend for you to go and listen to Mal- uh, to both Malcolm X speeches, but also Martin Luther King, the Three Evils of Society speech. Yeah. If you actually go systematically and read it, and just replace the dates with what is taking place today, same. it is the same. Which is the Three Evils of Society is materialism. Uh, militarism and racism. These are the three that we confront them and the fact that they're attacking Ilhan Omar that represents almost a consolidation of that in terms of her her, uh, blackness in relative to uh, being from Africa. The fact that she's a refugee as a result of the wars that have been imposed, militarism on uh, people in uh, Somalia and the Horn of Africa for the past 50 to 60 years. This is, again, part and parcel of it. And the fact that she came as a refugee in here and had to struggle in order to make it up. And in fact, we have Donald Trump attacking refugees and immigrants all the time. (laughs) You know, it's different (laughs) when you are born with a silver spoon in your mouth or a gold spoon versus somebody that actually had to struggle just to make it where they are. And again, one says that if you look at uh, Ilhan Omar, she is not part of the millionaire club because it seems that's the only way for you make it to Congress. So it's an interesting that some of the three leading voices right now in Congress, or at least the new maybe 20, none of them belong to that class. So we need to actually bring the people to the the people's house, the Congress, in order for us to begin to shift on the priorities. And I think this is part of the dynamic that we need to be putting forward. Well, on this uh, note, and I think it's a very good point that you are making, I want to thank you for coming to our studio as usual, Dr. Hatem Bazian. I want to encourage our listeners to go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, where you could download our apps and you could listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course, I want to thank all of our listeners in the Bay Area on KPOO. 89.5 89.5 FM and our viewers on Facebook Live. We'll see you next week.